Today, our message will feature another important Bible doctrine. If there is one Bible doctrine that I am most grateful for, it is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Despite whatever might happen in my life, whatever trials, whatever circumstances might come my way, I know that when I go to bed at night and when I wake up the following morning that I can trust that God is in sovereign control of all things. Everything that exists in the universe exists because God allowed it, decreed it, and called it into existence. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in the earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. From him and through him and to him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The sovereignty of God can and should comfort every believer. Not ironically, no doctrine is more despised by the unbelieving natural mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Naturally, human pride despises the suggestion that God orders everything, controls everything, rules over everything. Carnal thinking burns with enmity against God and abhors the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass except according to his eternal decrees even some within christian circles have created biblical doctrines such as free will the doctrine of free will open theism to somehow make the doctrine of the sovereignty of god more palatable and i'm grateful to be at a church that not only uh, stands uh, on the firm teaching of the scriptures of the sovereignty of god but the members here also exalt it and cherish it. How can God's sovereign control encourage you practically? In what ways will his sovereignty help you understand more about him and the coming year in 2016 and what he might have in store for you? When trials and difficult times come and the scriptures let us know, that they will? Will God's supremacy over the details of your life bring you great hope or hopelessness? Let's tackle the text. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 and verses 35 through 41 will be the focus of our study today. It says this, starting in verse 35, reading from the New American Standard. On that day, when evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. 
Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41 record a very dramatic story in the life and ministry of our Lord with the disciples. And like a Broadway play, it's made up of certain scenes, and when you put them all together, they provide the big picture. Our passage provides five factors so that you see God's sovereignty through this storm and trust him completely through the circumstances of your life and ministry. And we're going to break it down into five parts, and then we're going to go ahead and put it back together to make sure we see what God wants us to take away from it. The outline is in your notes, and our account begins with the serenity before the storm. Jesus and his disciples are just finishing a very full and strenuous day of ministry. And if we look backwards in this, in the, in this account, the day actually begins all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, when Jesus was facing blasphemous accusations by the Pharisees that he was controlled by Satan. Then we have his own family, and they thought that he lost his senses, so they come basically to, to kidnap Jesus and to take him back to Nazareth. Later in the day, he went down by the sea where he began to teach the pressing crowd in parables. The crowd was so great, you'll recall that Jesus arranged for a boat to stand ready for him that he could step right into on the Sea of Galilee. It was on a hill. There was a natural amphitheater called the, the Bay of Parables. That's what the, the modern uh, expression was noted. Arranged acoustically where Jesus could teach several thousand people at the same time. Then we see him begin to unpack these parables that we've spent the last few Sundays taking a very close look at. He taught on the parable of the soils, then the parable of the lamp, then the growing seed, then the mustard seed. And the day of teaching of the crowd is about to come to a close. And Jesus, we're told in verses 33 and 34, would explain things in private to his disciples. It says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And so it's on this quest for privacy that Jesus, as the day concluded, he says, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. This was going to get them away from the massive crowd. It was also going to free them up from any lurking religious Pharisees that might be around and tempt to interfere. Verse 35 and 36 express it this way. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, 
They took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And so this is important. Normally, he would have the opportunity to explain, and that's what verses 33 and 34 let us know, that he's going to have private conversation. But Jesus has never stepped out of the boat. Jesus has always been in the midst of the crowd, so that hasn't happened yet. And that's the purpose. So after a turbulent day of ministry, this is going to be a very much welcomed and peaceful opportunity to spend some private time with the Lord. And he's going to expand on the kingdom lessons that he's just spent the day teaching on. And Jesus is already in the boat, so it's an easy transition to rally the disciples and take off for the other side of the lake. The end of verse 36 reveals that there were also other boats. So there's a good number of disciples that appear to be following him at this point. Little did they know that during the night on their way over to the other side of the lake that Jesus was going to teach them a major lesson. And this takes us to our second stage setting factor, the severity of the storm. Look at verse 37. It says, and there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. As your notes indicate, this verse reveals three posing threats. And I want to take a moment to talk about each so that we grasp their severity. Let's start with the wind. Remember the Sea of Galilee It was called a sea, but it was really a lake. It was 13 miles long. It was seven miles wide. It actually sat uh, in in a basin uh, with mountains surrounding it. In fact, if you go 30 miles northeast to uh, to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee or the lake, there's where Mount Hermon is, which stands over 9,200 feet. And so these are tall mountains. And so it was very common to experience what was called the lake effect. I know I'm going to look like a meteorologist when I explain this, but, you know, that offshore flow that's going to move it. No, I'm just kidding. But there's, 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 it, it takes place. There is actually cool mountainous air in the upper elevations that would move down. And then when it would meet, that warm air would come off the surface of the lake and it would meet. It would create helicopter-type winds, swirling winds. Those who have ever traveled to Chicago who have been there have had a chance. If you've been in the city or especially down on Michigan Avenue, which goes right by Lake Michigan, you've experienced the effect, right? The cold air from the north, which it comes down from Canada and comes down. And as it meets that that warmer air that's rising up off the lake, you get a lot of wind. Some falsely think that this is why Chicago is called the Windy City, but it's actually nicknamed and connected to Illinois politicians in the 1800s who were actually filled with hot air, and uh, that's why they called it the Windy City, and that's the, the true origin of the nickname. President Obama, by the way, was an Illinois governor for eight years, so... I'll let you connect those dots. But the point that I want to make is that the the lake effect, the lake effect is very real in Chicago, and it was much, much worse in Galilee. Our verse in the NAS says that a fierce gale of wind arose, while the ESV describes it as a windstorm, 
which paints only a slightly stronger picture. The Greek words, fierce gale and windstorm, can also mean hurricane. This was no ordinary storm. The wind serves as the primary catalyst to the other two threats of this storm. The second threat posed were the waves. Verse 37 says that the wind was so strong and so severe, the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Again, this isn't the ocean. So there were no tides. There would be no reason for waves to exist unless the, the wind got so violent that it would start to, to pick up. And those who have been on lakes during storms, I've had the opportunity, and perhaps some of you have as well, you can see uh, some smaller waves and some very choppy waters uh, come to fruition. Historians have done research on these boats, and one shared the following. In 1986, the hull of a fishing boat was recovered from the mud on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about five miles south of Capernaum. The boat, 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high, corresponds to a design to a first century mosaic of a Galilean boat preserved in Migdal only a mile away from the discovery site and to a 6th century mosaic of a similar boat from Madiba. Carbon-14 technology dates that the boat between, it dates the boat between 120 B.C. and A.D. 40. Both the fore and aft sections, the, the front and the back sections of the boat were said, where am I? to have been covered with the deck providing space on which to sit or lie down. And apparently in Jesus' account, there was also a cushion there. So choppy waters, cushion, you know, all the people who've sat in bleachers can relate. The boat was propelled by four rowers, two per side, and has a total capacity of about 15 persons. The Galilee boat corresponds to the particulars of the boat described in the story and to depictions in various ancient artistic renderings. A similar boat accommodated Jesus and his disciples on their crossings of the Sea of Galilee, end quote. And so I was able to go online and track down a picture, and I wanted to pull it up so you could get a, a true visual of what that, what that boat looked like. And this is actually, you can go over when, to the Holy Lands, and they've made a replica and you can have a chance to, to see this actual boat if you, if you go. The thing that I want to draw our attention to is that, you know, it wasn't a canoe. So depending on your boating experience, you might have some idea like, oh, it was a smaller boat. They were in a canoe. Storm came. No, this is, this is a, a large boat. And they did some commercial fishing out of it. But the, the sides of it were four and a half feet tall. So... Think about this. If waves are crashing, okay, first of all, crashing, not just breaking, but crashing over the side, they had to be at least how tall? A, a minimum, a minimum of five feet. And so you think about this, and they were probably several feet tall. Any wave like that would easily be able to capsize a boat like this. They just weren't made for uh, the ocean waters. This is 
uh, a smaller boat, you would need a much bigger boat. Also, we got to add into the fact that there were other boats that were traveling together. It was at nighttime. If the swells were going back and forth, right, they could, they could actually slam into each other, and that by itself could be catastrophic. Well, there's a third posing threat, and that was, of course, the water. And here's what we have taking place. Sudden hurricane-like winds and gusts, right? In the middle of the night, the journey across the lake is several miles, and the boat is in danger of capsizing due to extremely large waves. And the end of the verse reveals that the boat is filling up with water. Does anyone know what happens when a wooden boat fills up with water? Let me help you. You quickly become one with the fish. All right? It's going to sink. It's going to sink. And even if those who were able to swim, this was at nighttime, they wouldn't be able to see the shoreline. They would be out a few miles, and even the best of swimmers would have a difficult time. So they understood this, especially Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, right? Because they even had fishing experience uh, growing up in on the sea of galilee so we can be certain that the thoughts of drowning to death has entered into the minds of all of the disciples certainly this wasn't a part of god's plan or was it the second stage setting factor helps develop God's sovereign purposes through this storm and helps us to see our need to completely trust him completely through the circumstances that we might face in our lives and in our ministry. They're, they're involved in ministry at this point. And there are principles of application for you and I to see even at this stage as we consider God's sovereignty. It will serve us well to be ready for the suddenness of storms. When the storms of life come, they often appear to come out of nowhere when we least expect them. Just like in this account, things started off smoothly, right? There was no indication whatsoever from the disciples' perspective that they were going to be fighting for their lives in a matter of a few hours later. Everything changed suddenly, right? Or did it? Was it sudden? Was it unplanned? It all depends on whose perspective that we're viewing this from. And this is absolutely critical when it comes to you and I understanding the sovereignty of God correctly. Nothing ever happens suddenly according to God's perspective. Nothing. Nothing sneaks up on him. Nothing catches him off guard. Every event that he has ordained for your life and for mine has been meticulously considered and calculated according to his perfectly decreed timing. Even the car that runs the red light or the heart attack that strikes someone who suddenly dies or the sudden loss of your job or the sudden diagnosis of the terminal illness God has calculated all of our sudden storms into his sovereignty and into his purposes. 
And it will serve you and I well to be ready for the suddenness of the storms. And the key for us is to have a godly perspective. One that anticipates trials and isn't surprised by them. That we wouldn't be tempted to think that as life is moving along and we're in a place where things appear to be going smoothly, that that is how things are supposed to be. That is not realistic thinking. It's not. We need to have a realistic view living in a fallen and broken world and that difficult times again are going to come. Paul shared that very those very words with Timothy. Contrary to what our world might teach, this is not being pessimistic. This is being realistic. And as Christians, we ought to be the most realistic people on the planet because God has unveiled our eyes to see the world as it truly is, right? We know, we know what's coming. War, can you believe it? We're still at war. (laughs) No, no, I could not believe it if we were never at war. That's the right perspective. That day will come. That day will come. And the scriptures appropriately prepare believers for the fact that faith-testing trials are coming our way. We know that, common verses in James 1. They remind us to consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various tiles, knowing that the testing of your faith is going to produce endurance. We see it again mentioned and featured, trials and tribulations, as it relates directly to our faith in Romans chapter 5. And so what happens if you and I are not prepared to face the storms? Well, let us consider the third stage setting factor, the shocking effects of the storm. Look at verse 38. Where it says, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Here are two shocking effects of the storm. First, we have the Lord completely unfazed, and the disciples completely panic stricken. What a contrast seen between these two things, and one that we should take special note of. Here we see the very human nature of the Lord. After a full day of ministry, he was completely exhausted. Teaching is hard work. takes a lot of energy. I'll say we have a number of school teachers in our congregation. You can talk to them about how they feel after any day. Just teaching um, uh, uh, 26 or 20 plus teenagers in a classroom. What about the fact of teaching several thousand people healing and ministering to every specific need jesus it should be no surprise in his humanity was exhausted and he was sleeping in the back of the boat the stern of the boat interestingly some have drawn comparisons to the story of jonah which share some dynamic parallels both accounts involve sea vessels Both accounts involve storms. Both involve panic-stricken sailors. Both involve one man sleeping who appears to be the only person that knows what is going on. Perhaps the most dynamic aspect is that both accounts feature the sovereignty of God and are intended to encourage us to trust his sovereignty. 
Ironically, in the account of Jonah, the rebellious prophet Jonah, he was fatigued because he was so busy running from God and being disobedient to the will of God, right? He was fleeing. In contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the other hand is exhausted because he was fulfilling God's will in obedience. More will be said about the sovereign Savior under our next factor. But for now, we need to see the second effect of the storm, the panic-stricken disciples. The response in the middle of verse 38 says it all. They woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You've heard the expression, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I'll just say that this question comes pretty close to challenging that principle. Okay? It really does. Do you not care? Can you imagine? I can't imagine after walking with the Lord and seeing all that he's done and healing and ministering and, and pouring himself out in expressions of love and mercy and tenderness. And yet they would come to a place where they would ask the question, don't you care? Both Matthew and Luke record the parallel accounts. In Matthew 8, 25, the disciples said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. While in Luke 8, 24, it says, they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. Commentator James Edwards shares this insight. The rudeness of Mark's wording reflects the way frustrated and desperate people speak and is probably a verbatim reminiscence of the disciples' response in this crisis. End quote. He then goes on and he includes a cross-reference to uh, Luke 1040, which is an account where Mary is with uh, Martha, right? Mary and Martha are together and they're at the, uh, with the Lord. And of course, um, Martha gets very disturbed that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and isn't helping. And so she, in that account, goes up to the Lord and said, listen, I'm doing all these things. I'm trying to get these things. Don't you even care? Tell my sister to help me. Exact same word. Exact same word. What's the point we need to take away? Pressures from the storms we face always reveal what is in the heart. And this is proving to be true with the disciples. There's actually one additional insight, and it's a nuance that you can only see in the Greek when it comes to this uh, verb that's translated, we are perishing, it's in the middle voice. There's active, middle, and passive voices in, in the Greek. And the emphasis is being placed upon themselves. The question could even be translated, teacher, do you not care that we ourselves are perishing? The, the, the general concern isn't we inclusive with the Lord, the, the middle voice helps us to see that the focus was on self and how quickly the effect of the storm had them focus on themselves and their circumstances. And the same can be true of us when unexpected storms and trials strike. We can get so overwhelmed immediately, right, with our own personal fears, our own anxieties, we can get so self-focused. 
We can get overwhelmed by the magnitude of the circumstances that we allow them to eclipse the sovereignty of God. And think about this. This is interesting to think about. There are so many different types of natural disasters. Hurricanes, tornadoes, lightning strikes, floods, earthquakes, tsunamis, avalanches, droughts, wildfires, volcanic eruptions, and on and on the list goes. When it comes to spiritual storms, there are also many different natural disasters that you and I could face in a fallen world. Storms of suffering may try to overwhelm our lives and devastate us with heartbreak, true heartache and turmoil. Diseases and illnesses and sicknesses abound, trying to bury us in a blizzard of affliction. And those who work in the medical field, they testify to this reality and they see it each and every week. Physical trials, storms of great suffering. Others might be overwhelmed by the storms of sorrow. Someone you love suddenly dies and it leaves you grief-stricken and shaken by your loss. Or perhaps it's a broken relationship. Someone you deeply cared for that brings in a storm of sorrow. Storms of sorrow are also very prevalent. And then we have the storms of sin and its consequences that may overwhelm us. And it's so true that sin comes into the picture like a gentle breeze. And it tries to promise satisfaction. And it leaves us disappointed and discouraged time and time again. Storms of sin are like tornadoes that leave a trail of damage and destruction that can only be repaired by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. And that's the truth, right? That's all that. that is such a great picture. A tornado is, is such a good picture of sin. Can I tell you why? Because how long do tornadoes typically last? Not very long. But what are the consequences after one that's even been on the ground just for a couple minutes? In some cases, less than a minute. Man, the results can be devastating. And it can take what? Years to rebuild. Years. The destruction is so real. The principle that we can apply from this passage is this. It isn't what storm that we are facing that matters, but who we turn to when it strikes. There is no storm that Jesus can't calm. There is no overwhelming problem or circumstance too great that he and his word cannot guide us through if we will just turn to him and trust him through it. And this sets us up perfectly for our fourth factor, the sovereign Savior in the storm. First, we're going to look at the sovereign rebuke, followed by the Savior's questions. Look at verse 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And all God's people said, wow. And we can be assured that the disciples were astonished, as they should be. 
One theologian affirmed the sovereign Lord spoke and his creation immediately responded. And though the disciples have witnessed Jesus' authority over demons and leprosy and death, paralysis, as well as his authority even in front of the scribes and Pharisees that the Son of Man even has authority over the Sabbath, they've witnessed that. This is the the first occurrence where they see him exercise his authority, his sovereign rule over the realm of nature. When describing Jesus rebuking the wind, Mark uses the same Greek word translated rebuke that he used twice earlier in Mark 1.25 and 3.12 when Jesus rebuked the evil spirits accenting his sovereign authority. Jesus uses the same Greek word translated hush or be quiet in those same occurrences. So it's the same, and it's intended. You know, that was purpose. Mark, Mark wanted us to help see his sovereignty. That was his control, his absolute authority. And it extended over every realm. And this is a sovereign rebuke that is pointing to something that only God can do. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, God alone possesses the power to stop natural storms. And it's mentioned in a, in a few different psalms. Psalm 65.7, 89.9, 104.7, Psalm 65.7 says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples? I like this verse because it builds a connection from natural disasters to, to the spiritual affliction that takes place in the life of, of God's people. And that's what Mark is ultimately doing for us today, the, the principles from our passage which we're looking at. Here in this account, Mark informs his readers that the same power and sovereign authority belongs to Jesus. And he's helping them to see both his deity and his sovereignty. And this was also helping, it helps you and I see it. And certainly we didn't, the disciples uh, can't miss it. Jesus concludes by using this as a very unique discipleship opportunity. And this, uh, again, extends even from, from the time where this is actually taking place. Jesus knew about this event. His sovereignty is seen all the way through from the very beginning, right? That this was going to take place. And this was going to afford him the opportunity to disciple the men that he was investing in. And we see this through the Savior's questions in verse 40, 40, where it humbly asks, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Here the Lord was helping them to see a storm is only a problem if God's not in the boat with you. And that's the truth. A storm is only a problem if he's not in the boat with you. And believers, we know that so well, don't we? Do we not know that so well? When, when we look to Christ, when, when the challenges come, and this world has no hope, they have nothing to look to. They're desperate. They're lost. They're clinging to all these other things that will not rescue They have no sovereign savior. He was discipling them to let them know that their faith needed to be completely in him. 
And listen to me, this, this is so important. Every storm that you and I face provides an opportunity to either become fearful of the circumstances that have been brought our way or to be fearful of the sovereign one over your circumstances. We get that, right? There's the, the, those are the two options. To be overwhelmed with fear, but as we look at the storm and the waves crashing in the boat and the difficulties that are going to come, and we can be tempted to think, oh my gosh, we're not going to make it. There's no way we can make it financially. There's no way that we can make it physically, whatever it might be. Relentless waves. But if we look to the one who is in sovereign control over those circumstances, that's where our focus needs to be. And I'll share this. These questions right here, and it's really a double, it's a single question in the Greek, it's a double question. These could be perhaps two of the greatest discipleship questions in all of the Gospels. The next time a storm hits your life or mine, we need to recall and ask ourselves these two questions. And I want you to hear these. Why are you afraid? Answer that question at face value. See it with clarity. Why are you afraid? What could we possibly be so afraid of? How is it that you have no faith? In the Greek, it, it actually carries the notion of lacking faith, not being faithless here, okay? And we have a boatload and that's perfectly punny for this situation. A boatload of scriptures that encourage us properly on how to answer those questions. Why are you afraid when God's word says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Proverbs 3.25 do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of wicked when it comes. There's a verse for today. With terrorism and all the, the, the things that are around us, all the threats, do not be afraid when sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of wicked when it comes. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, 11, and 118, 6. Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Again, what will man do to me? People, circumstances, are we going to fear those things? Really? Or are we going to look to the one who has sovereignty, who's in complete control over those things? We can even go to our Hobby Lobby verses. I love mentioning them. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. 
Have faith. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he's going to do what? He's going to give you straight paths. He will give you straight paths through your storm. He will get you to the other side of the lake, spiritually speaking. Question for you. Did the disciples make it to the other side of the lake? They did. You know what? So will you and I. So will you and I, if we trust the Lord and we look to him during our trials and we, we cling to him, that we don't get overcome by our fears, but rather we cling to the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Savior through our storms. We just need to fear the Lord. And the fifth and final factor encourages us to see how the disciples were led to do this very thing. Again, we're studying five factors so that you see God's sovereignty through this storm. And trust him completely with the circumstances of your life and ministry. We've talked about the serenity before the storm, the suddenness of the storm, the shocking effects of the storm, the sovereign savior in the storm. And now we'll conclude with this shift in fear after the storm. Look at verse 41. And notice the disciples' reactions. It says, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And here in verse 41, we get again another parallel into the account of Jonah. Mark records that the disciples were terrified after the calming of the storm. Their fear, great fear, repeats verbatim the fear of the sailors in Jonah 1 when the pagan sailors and Jonah's story recognized God in the presence of the miracle and offered a sacrifice to him. Here in Mark 4, in the calming of this storm on the lake, Jesus does again what only God can do. And now Mark invites the disciples then and us now to recognize the same sovereignty in the presence and person of Christ. And we need to get this. They were terrified by the power of Christ. Right? They were terrified by what they had just seen. They weren't terrified by his presence. Right? In fact, we can be certain that when they faced violence and difficulty and challenge in the days of head, that his presence was of great comfort. Believe me, after what they saw happen, would they not have been glad that he was in the boat with them? And the thing that we need to grasp, again, is the, is the paradigm shift that every circumstance that's brought our way is going to e either cause to fear people or circumstances. And we need to be fearing the one who is in sovereign control over those things. Question for you and your heart. Do you always do this? Do you always do this? Fear Christ, look to Christ. When difficult times came just last week, maybe even over the holidays, or last year, or last decade, whatever it might be for your life, do you always do this? I know. I'll be the, the first to confess it, and I know that there would be a long line. If we all lined up, nor did the first disciples. 
And they needed these constant reminders to have faith. And we see this actually through all the gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, especially in Mark chapters 7 through 9, which we'll eventually get to. We're going to see Jesus exhort them again. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? As you apply the principles of this message, I think it presents an opportunity for some great conversations to take place. Married couples, I would encourage you to take some time later today or perhaps this week to sit down with your spouse and to, and to talk through what potential storms that the Lord could bring and have you face in 2016. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm, right? It's always been said as it relates to trial, we're, we're either, what, going into one, we're in the middle of one, or coming out of one. But this would be a great opportunity to make sure that you're on the same page. How prepared are you to trust the Lord? How can you encourage one another in Christ? Parents, I would talk and shepherd your kids. Help them to anticipate potential storms in their lives. They're, they're, they're so young, they're, they're, they're still just trying to figure it out. And what a, a blessing and a privilege to look back and for, for the parents that would talk to um, their children in advance about their grandparents dying or the difficulty of these things that might take place in your life and to have them prepared. Did you know that this could happen? Son, I realize you want to play high school football. But do you realize that just in one episode and one blink of an eye that you could be paralyzed? Did, let's talk about this. And Lord willing, you won't be. Dad wasn't. But still, we, we, have, to, uh, we have to prepare them and talk about the greatest trials that they may go through and why the sovereignty of God should encourage them. And of course, the, the gospel is right there for them to trust. I mean, that's, that's at, the, at the very core of building the bridge to the sovereignty of God in salvation and connects us to the sovereign Savior amidst our trials. You know, I find it fascinating that some are so consumed with making New Year's resolutions and I'll let you know that I've started one. Victoria and I have, uh, we're, we're attempting to do this, and you can be praying for us. We've, we, we've eliminated all processed food and um, processed sugars and gluten from, from our diet. We just wanted to take that challenge just to see how it would feel. And I had a headache all day yesterday, <laughs> if that means anything. Talk about serious detox, man. But I'll also, when I was writing this sermon, I talked to her, and she'll, she's at home with the kids. But I asked her, I said, you know, what, what potential trials could the Lord bring our way in 2016? Took that opportunity. You know, as much as these other things matter, and of course the world has their own perspective on things anyway, but as Christians, we have a godly perspective. We, we know that they're coming Let's make a preemptive strike and let's talk about it. There's a great 
principle of universal and spiritual application that we cannot miss from this passage. Without difficulties, without trials, stresses, even failures, we would never grow to be what we should become. Storms are part of the process of God growing us spiritually. So let's be ready for them. Amen? Let's be ready for them. What will we fear? And will we trust his sovereignty through the storm? Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads thanking you for this opportunity just to give you thanks for a new year. There are a number of things that people look forward to and anticipate. There's nothing wrong with that. Looking for ways to improve things. Looking forward to reaching and striving towards goals. I in no way and hope that I didn't undermine those things. Those are, those are good things. Yet, in a spirit of wisdom, you would have us consider that the church is in a giant ship sailing on this world that is filled and ravished with different storms. We come together corporately to acknowledge that very fact. And yet our lives, our lives as we go out in our little boats each and every week, we all hit the individual storms that you've ordained that we would have to meet, that we would have to face. And you don't want us to over, be overcome with fear. You don't want us to fret about our circumstances or about people. You want us to fear you, to fear the reality that you are sovereign and in control of all things. And that we do have a great sympathetic high priest who can empathize with us. Jesus was on the boat in this storm, physically. And as we think about it, even his death on the cross involved the greatest storm of all utter turmoil and devastating impact of sin that nobody could ever calm. And even the sovereign one, the Lord Jesus Christ, calm that storm for us. There's nothing he can't do. There's no storm that he cannot overcome. Remind us of that fact. Help us to see that you're right there with us every step of the way. And Father, when we do fall short, help us to learn the lesson the second time. Help us not to repeat it. Help us to be testimonies to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and how to deal with the trials that we face. And I thank you for being in a church where so many have embraced difficult trials and have been such faithful testimonies. Help us all to continue to walk in faithfulness and encourage our spirit with the two questions that our Lord has asked us in this passage today.
Why are we afraid? And how is it that we have no faith and we know that you will provide the answers to those questions? We give you thanks and praise. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.